This is Latin Pulse, a weekly analysis of news and public affairs in Latin America, brought to you through the cooperation of the School of Communications at Webster University, the global university headquartered in St. Louis, Missouri, and Link TV. And now, here's host Rick Rockwell. Bienvenidos and welcome to Latin Pulse. This week, a one-hour summer special to cover some of the key issues in the region, from the crisis in Venezuela to the search for peace in Colombia and human rights concerns in Honduras. But first, Chorsey Martin is here with our weekly review of news from around Latin America. The Supreme Court in El Salvador struck down that country's amnesty law, a ruling that could clear the way for a variety of human rights cases dating back to the country's civil war, a war that officially ended in 1992. David Morales, El Salvador's special prosecutor for human rights, says victims of war atrocities have waited a long time for the ruling. We must see this ruling as a victory for victims of the civil war and for human rights organizations. El Salvador passed the amnesty law to protect military and government leaders who may have been linked to massacres and other human rights abuses. Until now, prosecutors in Spain seeking justice for the massacre of Spanish Jesuit priests during the war have had trouble pursuing those accused of the crime due to the amnesty law. Human rights groups count at least 200 massacres in the country linked to the military, some from times even before the Civil War. At least 75,000 people died during the war. Human rights groups say at least 30,000 were civilians. International condemnation this week after the assassination of another indigenous activist in Honduras. The United Nations, the European Union, and members of the U.S. Congress all reacted to the killing of Lesbia Yaneth Yurkia. Yurkia was one of the leaders of the Council of Indigenous People of Honduras. She had led that group and others against the building of a dam on land sacred to indigenous groups. Yurkia's killing comes just four months after the assassination of Berta Caceres another key indigenous leader who opposed the dam. Prosecutors in that case have charged men with links to the Honduran military and to the firm constructing the dam with murdering Caceres. Police in Honduras also say they have apprehended Yorkia's killers and those men have no links to the opposition of her political activism. Congressman Hank Johnson, a Democrat from suburban Atlanta, has introduced a law in reaction to the killings. The law would suspend all U.S. security assistance to Honduras until all human rights violations by security forces there ceased. We'll have more on the Honduran military later in this program. Venezuela moved on two fronts this week to relieve food shortages and to stop food riots. First, Venezuela loosened restrictions on crossing the border into Colombia. Thousands of Venezuelans flowed across the border to buy groceries in Colombia. Venezuela is suffering from food shortages of even the most basic commodities, including sugar, flour, and cooking oil. Venezuelans must wait in long lines for what food is available. This week, the government placed that country's military in charge of food distribution, one way to stop the looting of stores and warehouses. Some Venezuelans, tired of the food lines, have started riots and taken the food in warehouses and stores. We'll have more on the crisis in Venezuela after this newscast. Beware, river pirates are on the loose in the Amazon. This week, a luxury tour boat filled with tourists from the United States fell victim to the pirates. Eight of the river thieves boarded the tour boat and robbed the tourists of more than $20,000 in cash, jewelry, and other belongings. The pirates struck while the boat was anchored in the upper Amazon in Peru. None of the tourists were injured during the armed robbery. France has more to worry about besides what looks to be a terrorist attack on Bastille Day. French military experts say they are concerned about the possibilities their Olympic team could be attacked at the Summer Games in Rio. The French government released information this week as part of a formerly secret security review conducted two months ago by the French parliament. The French security review expresses concern that jihadist groups working in Brazil will target the French athletes at the Games. The Games are set to begin next month in Rio de Janeiro. The Brazilian government says the French have not officially informed them of the perceived threats before the news release. Brazil promises to deploy 85,000 police and military troops to provide security during the Games. 
Brazilian government officials have expressed concerns earlier this year that the games could become a target for jihadist groups. Brazil has lost one of its leading filmmakers, Hector Babenco, as a producer and director. Babenco crafted 13 films. His best known is likely Kiss of the Spider Woman from 1985. That was the first independent film nominated in four major Academy Award categories, including Best Picture. William Hurt won an Oscar for Best Actor in that film. Although born in Argentina, Babenco is known for his work in Brazil where he lived for more than 45 years. Babenko's last film was called My Hindu Friend and was released last year. Babenko died of a heart attack in Sao Paulo, Brazil. He was 70 years old. For Latin Pulse, I'm Chorsey Martin. A pause to remember Hector Babenko. And now we turn our attention back to Venezuela. The country is struggling through various crises. On the economic front, hyperinflation, and food shortages. On the political front, a petition movement to recall President Nicolas Maduro from office. And criticisms that the country's democracy has slipped into authoritarianism. From Luis Amalgro, Secretary General of the Organization of American States, the OAS, and others across the political spectrum. We asked Dan Hellinger for his viewpoint. He's the co-editor of Bolivarian Democracy in Venezuela, Participation, Politics, and Culture, among other books. He writes for the website of the Center for Democracy in the Americas, and he teaches at Webster University. We spoke to him on location at the university campus in Webster Groves, Missouri. It's serious. I think it's been exaggerated somewhat in the media, particularly in outlets like the Washington Post, um, which have painted Venezuela almost as a humanitarian disaster zone comparable to Syria or somewhere. Things are bad enough. There clearly are uh, uh, acute shortages. Uh, the more serious in poor areas than in wealthy areas of Caracas. Wealthy areas of Caracas, yeah, people have scarcity, have to wait online for things, but they generally get them. Um, and one problem has been that there has been a lot of black market activity whereby um, hawkers buy goods, uh, subsidize goods cheaply in poor areas, and then sell them in middle class areas. But on the other hand, I've heard from a number of, uh, of, of Venezuelans and Americans working in Venezuela who've always been sympathetic to Chavismo and are more left than progressive in their thinking, who have given me direct reports about people, um, let's say, when I say going hungry, I don't mean to say that anybody's starving in Venezuela, but they definitely are having to scrounge and work hard and poor people share with one another. So that indicates that it's, that it's serious it's not a humanitarian disaster yet, and it worries me sometimes when it's reported that way in the press because that often is a prelude to some form of U.S. intervention in the region. Um, but there's no doubt that it's a very serious problem. It's undermined support for the Maduro government, Maduro the successor to Chavez, and it's, so it's mightily co contributed to his unpopularity. What do you see as the reason behind this? Is, is it because of corruption? Is it because the Maduro government isn't as strong as the Chavista government? What's I actually think corruption is a minor part of it. I mean, essentially you've got, there's a number, there's, as, as in so many things like this, multiple factors, right? Okay, one thing is oil prices have drastically fallen. Now, when I say they've drastically fallen, they've fallen from a high of like $130 to today $40 to $50. But it's, we should remember that back in 2006, when Chavez was president, oil prices ascended to $50, and everybody thought that was boom times. So obviously, when you look at the second half of the 2000s, I would say, in fact, all the way up until 2014, you have to ask the question, why did Venezuela not prepare itself for the time in which prices were going to fall again? So that's, that's you know, you can't just say it's the fall in oil prices. You've got to ask why they didn't manage the boom well. In Venezuela, there's a lot of sense that, well, it's corruption. There's corruption in Venezuela, no doubt about it. I mean, for example, if you're offering gasoline for 25, 30 cents, actually, it's less than that. It's like a nickel, equivalent of a nickel a gallon. Yeah, people are going to fill up their tanks, smuggle it into Colombia, empty their tanks, go back again. 
Um, and then on a larger scale, there's plenty of room for people to literally steal oil and earmark it for other parts of the world. So there's corruption. I still don't think that's the basic problem. I think the basic problem is that um, Venezuelans have always thought that what they had to do was diversify the economy, become less dependent on oil. Instead of thinking about oil as the leading industry in their country and really saying that what we have to do is manage the balance between production and defense of prices. And they failed to do that adequately. I'll add one more thing. As different as Hugo Chavez and Carlos Andres Perez, Carlos Andres Perez was the president in the late 70s and then he returned again later in the 80s, but if you go back to the prior boom of the 1970s, what happened? Carlos Andres Perez, the president of the country, um, decided to borrow lots of money against future exports to, to, of, of oil to try to diversify and industrialize the economy overnight. That was a disaster. When oil prices fell, Venezuela couldn't pay, the industries were inefficient. Now Chavez tried to do something a little different in the sense that he tried to sow the oil, as the Venezuelans say, in kind of grassroots projects of a kind of alternative socialist form of development. I don't fault him for wanting to find an alternative form of development, a grassroots one, but in the end, he neglected the oil industry itself. And I think Venezuelans got into the notion, although they should have learned from the past, that oil prices were going to stay high, that it would be, and they failed to develop the oil industry as an industry, and to prepare for the day when oil prices would, fell, would fall. And I think a lot of that is at the root of this. Um, is it corruption? Well, you know, when you look, when you do an analysis of who benefited from the subsidized dollars, that were made available, it was the biggest companies. It was the foreign corporations and the domestic corporations. That, it wasn't always corruption. It wasn't as though they, there was, there was speculation and there were people who made money, probably made several million dollars, but that's a drop in the bucket when you compare it to the legal corruption, if you will, of the system, where um, basically nobody really wanted to produce what actually most people were doing was getting cheap dollars to import. Well, oil prices have fallen, the dollars aren't as available, voila, you have a crisis. What about competence? The competence of the Maduro government? Well, Is that in question? It should be. Um, there's little doubt that Maduro has not managed things very well. Um, if he, he, he stepped into difficult shoes. He was chosen by Chavez, and Chavez was kind of a revolutionary saint, remains that way in Venezuela. It's very easy, for, especially for people who used to support Chavez and now oppose Maduro, to think, oh, you know, if Chavez were still here, none of this would have happened. I definitely believe that Chavez, for all his faults, was a person capable of governing, but the way he governed was to do it all himself. He didn't really prepare, again, for what might happen if he disappeared, which of course he did when he died in early 2014. So Maduro steps into this as a, as a former bus driver with some political experience. I think sometimes we underestimate his intelligence, but he did His labor union experience. His labor union experience. Um, but he didn't have any military experience, and the cabinet was full of military officers. Um, and you know what, what Chavez should have done what Chavez should have done is once he knew how ill he was, um, he should, and that he was going to have to choose a successor, he should have prepared the ruling party, the, the, the United Socialist Party of Venezuela, to basically say, I'm not going to run again, and you're going to have to choose a candidate. That would have set off a process of succession. Would it have gone well? I don't know. But I know that Chavez's succession was ill-planned and certainly has not turned out very well. You have seen people on the left move away from supporting this particular government. Right. And, and I wonder, from your earlier comments, um, is, is that a fair assessment? Do you think that, that the left needs to be as critical now of the Maduro government? Well, there's a left inside of Venezuela it's called Marea Socialista, the socialist tide. And, and there, you know, it's not, I don't know if I'd call it a mass movement, it's probably more intellectuals, it's, uh, when I say intellectuals, not just people who are university professors, but I mean people that write on blogs, people who are, do the grassroots radio, the kind of grassroots people who are also thinkers, they post a lot on a, on a board called aporea.org, which is, uh, means the beat, and that's where you find a lot of these people. And um, so they've 
pretty much defected. <laughs> it's hard to know. It's like when the, that joke about what, did I quit or was I fired? Um, you could say that about Morea. I mean, basically they were expelled, but they also quit at the same time. So clearly they've defected and they're calling for more criticism, but they're calling for what they say a deepening of the revolution. They're both right and wrong about that. A deepening of the revolution, I think, in the sense that there needs to be political reform. There needs to be democratization of the PSUV. If what they mean by deepening of the revolution means seizing the means of production, which they often say, they're forgetting that the means of production in Venezuela are not really what puts food on the table. It's the oil economy puts food on the table. And, and the government runs that economy. The government runs the economy, but you know, not alone. We forget. That sounds like a socialist system to a lot of people. But you've got to remember that it was still basically a capitalist system. Right? The distribution system now is, you know, was still capitalist. And while I can spread the blame around for the problems today, Maduro has to take some of it, Chavez has to take some of it, the opposition has to take some of it. These guys don't have their own act together. They're, they're constantly politically battling, um, calling for demonstrations in the street, which they know sometimes will turn violent, not knowing how to deal effect, not really with a program of government of their own, and representing a bourgeoisie, a capitalist, a business class that has always relied upon government subsidies and has wasted them. So, you know, there's, there's plenty of blame to go around here. It's not just poor Maduro. I do think, on the other hand, that I would, I would argue that Maduro needs to acknowledge that ever since the General Assembly elections of December, when the opposition won a majority, demonstrably the, the PSUV had lost support, and so did Maduro. And there's a constitution in Venezuela that has this recall strategy. Um, yeah, I mean, there's probably some fraud on the opposition side, but they turned in a lot of signatures, and if you just look at the polls and you look at what's going on in Venezuela, you know that a lot of people would be very happy to see Maduro exit. And I think that, I think that Maduro, you know, should, uh, should accept the mediation, not of the OAS, but of the UNASUR group, which has called in uh, three former presidents, including a former prime minister of Spain, uh, to try to mediate between the opposition and the government. And it's really time for the government to take that seriously. Um, for one thing, what it means is that they would have to start thinking about who would replace Maduro in a systematic way and not just wait for what will happen if there is a recall election. Let's talk a little bit about some of these items that you've just brought up. And, and um, let's start maybe with, with the OAS. Mm -hmm. um, we see the Secretary General of the OAS, a relatively new Secretary General, yeah. someone who comes from the left in Uruguay, has been very critical um, of this particular government. And we see the international left also moving away from supporting the Maduro government. Um, again, do you feel that these are legitimate criticisms? Well, the international left is not united on what they want, want to happen in Venezuela. I mean, there are sectors that have moved away from Maduro that say, go further to the left. And the international left, frankly, doesn't have the same stake in this as ordinary Venezuelans do. So even though a moment ago I gave some advice about what I think ought to happen, I respect Venezuelans to make this decision for themselves. It'd be nice if they accepted international mediation, but it's a sovereign country, right? Um, Amalgro is treating Venezuela really, the I Secretary think, very, General. the Secretary General, and he's of the OAS, which a lot of people call the Office of the Colonies. And, you know, I, I, I realize, you know, that there are ways in which you could challenge, in a lot of ways, how democratic is Venezuela, but the situation is a lot worse in places like Honduras. The situation is worse in Brazil, where there's been what I regard as a soft coup, as an, you know, an impeachment that is illegal, and it's going to be very interesting to see what happens if Dilma actually gets, fails to be impeached in that country. Um, and I could, uh, in Mexico, you've got clear indications of rampant corruption, of repression. Um, uh, we have uh, activists being killed in Honduras, El Salvador. So, you know, there are countries where the situation is even worse than Venezuela, although you wouldn't know that from the, from the North American media in particular. So you have to ask the question, why is the OAS so fixated on Venezuela in particular? 
Um, now, what happened is, of course, the OAS has sort of split sides, particularly since you have some, you have a new Brazilian government, you have a new uh, Argentine government, some important countries are now, have shifted from the left, at least temporarily, from the left to the right. So um, there's the, the but, but even at that, the OAS is, is split over this, and there weren't enough votes to actually get what a, a Malgo for him to get what he wanted, which was to invoke the Democratic Charter by which Venezuela would be subject to 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 sanctions, to penalties, right? Uh, instead, what he got was a vote where the OAS said, "Yeah, you Venezuelans, uh, we think you ought to accept mediation of this dispute." I think Amalgro is, I'm not sure what his game is in Washington. I, I'm sure he would like to try to make the OAS relevant again, and maybe he sees an opening for this, because when you look at the at the overall hemispheric balance of power, you got a conservative government in Mexico, you got a conservative government in Colombia, you got a conservative government in Peru, Paraguay, Argentina, Brazil. So he probably thinks now's an opportunity to, you know, to sort of, move on this American, on this, on this democratic charter. I think, if, if nothing else, he, he also, the other, probably the other thing going on is the OAS has taken a lot of criticism from Congress, including threatening of cutting off their funding from the U.S. Congress. And I just, I don't have any proof, but I have a hypothesis that that's beginning to, to affect how the OAS does its business. Let's talk about the recall. Yeah. In, in the recall, um, there's a timetable that's right. That's key here. Yeah. Do you feel that the Maduro government has been abusive in trying to wait the clock out, as it would be, on this and not getting those signatures affirmed in a, in a timely manner? I think actually both sides have been abusive of the process. I think he's been abusive by even going so far in one speech as suggesting he might close the National Assembly. Now, he didn't say that directly, but he came close enough to, to, to make the message clear. Um, and he also has, you know, without even waiting for the National Electoral Council to come down with his decision, you know, kind of laid the basis. This is illegal. This is, you know, there can't be any recall before the end of the, uh, by, before February, which is the date by which, even if he got thrown out, the PSUV would keep control of the presidency through the vice presidency. But on the other hand, so also has the opposition, very unfairly, I think, criticize the CNE before it's even made a decision. Now, four of the five people in the CNE are Chavistas, but the CNE, in fact, approved the initial uh, stage of, 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 of gathering. Technically, it's been a very efficient and very effective organization. So, you know, the opposition is, I think, it deserves just as much blame as the government for the failure to really reach the point. There are people, there are some sectors in the opposition that have been willing to talk to the government and other sectors that have been completely unwilling to talk to the gov government. And right at the moment, it's the latter that seem to be holding the balance of power within the MUD, the Democratic uh, Roundtable. So both sides have s some answering to do, and that's what's worrisome, this kind of political polarization, this refusal on both sides to kind of look really for a middle ground um, is is disturbing, worrisome about the direction of the country. Thanks so much. Our guest today, Dan Hellinger of Webster University and the Center for Democracy in the Americas. Thanks for being our guest on Latin Thank Pulse. you. Thank you for inviting me, and thanks for doing this, Rick. It's a great, it's a, it's a great service. We'll have more from that interview with Dan Hellinger later this summer, and coming a bit later on the Latin Pulse special, the author of the new book Brazilianaires about corruption in Brazil, and next. We take Hellinger's advice and delve into the human rights situation in Honduras. Stay with us. This planet we call Earth, abundant with new food, new cures, new life. An amazing place. Please don't let it vanish without a trace. Call for your free World Wildlife Fund Action Kit with 10 simple things you can do to help leave our children a living planet. Call 1-800-C-A-L-L-W-W-F. Welcome back to the Latin Pulse Summer Special. As we heard earlier, political assassinations and violence continue to roil the political situation in Honduras. An investigative report last month from The Guardian in the United Kingdom reveals the Honduran military had a hit list of political activists. Indeed, more than 100 political activists have been murdered in Honduras in the past five years. We turn to Orlando Perez for answers. 
Perez is the Associate Dean at Millersville University in Pennsylvania. He's the co-author of the new report, Honduran Military Culture, and the author of Civil-Military Relations in Post-Conflict Societies, Transforming the Role of the Military in Central America. I think the issue of human rights, the issue of um, cracking down on paramilitary forces, cracking down on private private companies using retired military officers and using police to do their dirty bidding, uh, to to crack down on their opponents. That is something that I think needs to be worked on. And I think the U.S. can play a very positive role in that direction as well. Because you mentioned that, and earlier we spoke briefly about the Berta Cáceres case. You mentioned police assassinations. And this entire interview has been about the importance of the Honduran military. Do you have any concerns or fears that Honduras is slipping toward a police state, a militarized state? I wouldn't go so far. Uh, But I do have concerns that President Hernandez um, is, is using the military police in a politicized way. Uh, he wants to make it a permanent institution with constitutional rank. He is pushing to change the constitution so that he can uh, run for re-election. That is clear. Uh, interestingly enough, uh, that was what Celaya was removed from office uh, for. Uh, but clearly, Hernandez is pushing that. And many in Honduras fear that the military police is his way that he's using that institution as a way of defending himself from the actual uniformed military, uh, and that he's using it as 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 a as a as as his political as part of his political protection. Uh, I'm 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 not sure that that I would go that far, but certainly the killing of civil rights uh, and human rights and environmental rights uh, activists. Um, killing of journalists, which has been a big problem in Honduras, particularly since 2009, is a major concern. And clearly the military police is a militarized police. That is its function. You have the militarized police, you have um, tactical SWAT, uh, highly trained tactical SWAT teams within the police that sometimes use uh, military weaponry you have the coordinating interagency groups uh, that are highly militarized. These uh, agencies are being run by either uniformed military officers or retired military officers. Uh, And so um, he has really relied on his friends within the military. He has uh, promoted people that are loyal to him within the military. Um, and what he's counting on is, of course, the results. He's, he's counting on the fact that uh, people are going to look at the reduction in homicide rates, the disarticulation of some of the criminal networks, uh, the arrest of some high-profile drug traffickers, and that they're going to reward him for that success while ignoring, again, some of the human rights violations that are Uh, clearly occurring. So is it a militarized state? I wouldn't go so far as to say that right now, but there is a concern that in fact um, uh, the military is increasing its influence, that, um, that a militarized police that is seen as effective in dealing with crime is increasing in its authority, and particularly that there is not a significant crackdown in retired military officers, police officers, and retired police officers um, being used um, as private security forces that not just do security, but actually go out and kill people. Uh, Just recently, for example, in the Cáceres, in the Berta Cáceres uh, case, a major uh, a, a military uh, major was arrested uh, as one of the intellectual masterminds of 
the of the crime. Now, the question that I have in that regards is, did any superiors, did any, did any of his superiors, what did his superiors know and when did they know it? Nobody knows. I mean, a major is a fairly high-level um, officer. Um, and so um, one wonders where their brass, where their generals uh, and higher-ups, colonels, that are involved and knew about it. So that's very troubling. Isn't there a particular irony now that President Hernandez is, is moving toward trying to get permission to have a second term? And indeed, that was one of the reasons that he backed the coup and backed um, having Manuel Zelaya deposed. Oh, it's a, it's 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 uh, it's highly ironic. Uh, I mean, it's it's almost uh, it's it's almost like you, you know you can't make it up. But it is ironic that this is a this is a guy who was in Congress at the time of the coup and supported the coup against Zelaya and argued against what Salaya was doing, and he is now essentially trying to, do, uh, trying to do the same thing. Thank you so much, Orlando Perez, Associate Dean at Millersville University, the author of Civil-Military Relations in Post-Conflict Societies, Transforming the Role of the Military in Central America. He joins us via Skype from Lancaster, Pennsylvania on Latin Pulse. Thank you very much for being our guest. Thank you very much for having me. My pleasure. We'll be hearing more from that interview with Orlando Perez later this summer. Coming up, exploring the peace process in Colombia. Stay with us. This is Tom Scared for The Borgen Project. Each year, nearly 2 million children die from preventable diseases. Each day, 30,000 people die from hunger. 500 each hour are children. The Borgen Project is turning this around. We need your help. To learn more, go to borgenproject.org. That's B-O-R-G-E-N project.org. President Juan Manuel Santos of Colombia has predicted an end to his country's civil war this month, a war that has stretched on for more than 52 years, a conflict that has claimed at least 220,000 lives and left millions as refugees. Complicating the war, two separate rebel groups, the National Liberation Army, known as the ELN, and the larger rebel force, the Revolutionary Armed Forces of Colombia, the FARC. After more than three years of peace negotiations in Cuba, Colombia's government and the FARC announced a disarmament agreement earlier this summer. We asked Jimena Sanchez to explain the complex negotiations. Sanchez is with the Washington office on Latin America, WOLA. She joined us via long-distance line from Washington, D.C. This is a huge deal because it's the fifth agenda point and the trickiest agenda point in the past three years and a half of negotiation between the government and the FARC. So just to recap, there have been agreements on political participation, on rural reform, on illicit drugs, on transitional justice, victims. Those are the um, major points. And now we have um, this accord, which is really the biggest one and basically is going to seal the deal. That said, this is not the complete end to the conflict. The final accord is not going to be signed until they review a whole bunch of um, issues that they set aside and they come to a full agreement looking at all of the issues all together. President Juan Manuel Santos has announced that that will happen before July 20th, which is Colombia's Independence Day. Um, we're not so convinced that it will happen so quickly, but we think it will happen very soon. So in terms of the FARC conflict that's gone on for 52 years, where there have been multiple peace attempts that have failed miserably, this is a major, major change in, in Colombia. However, the FARC is not the only armed group that is present in the country. There is a smaller group, the ELN, that has been also trying to get a comparable peace process as like the FARC. Uh, It is unlikely that that process is going to be as comprehensive as the FARC's process. However, it was announced 
over four weeks ago that they have been engaging with the Colombian government. They even laid out some of their agenda points, and since then it hasn't really gone very far. Um, what has happened with the ELN is that they kidnapped three journalists in a conflictive region of Catatumbo, which is near the Venezuelan border. Those persons were later released, but it led to a whole debate within Colombia about the ELN having to end kidnapping before they could move forward with um, a peace process. The other groups that are present in Colombia are basically paramilitaries or criminal bands, depending on who you ask. Uh, basically, these are illegal armed groups that are militia-style groups. Many of them engage in organized crime activities, mostly drugs, but also extortion rackets and other forms of organized crime. Uh, that um, Some are AUC paramilitaries, right-wing paramilitaries, that never fully demobilized and just regrouped, or others have been newly recruited um, by these structures. There are multiple different structures of these groups. The Colombian government says that they're only criminal bands, while many of the civil society and expert organizations that we uh, deal with tell us that they're actually a um, successor group of the paramilitaries. One of the biggest concerns for the FARC, because in the history of peace accords in the 1980s, the FARC demobilized, formed a, a political party called the Patriotic Union, and then more than 3,000 of its members were assassinated by paramilitaries, is the laying down of arms and being unprotected and guaranteeing the safety and the lives of their demobilized. Hence, a very elaborate plan where um, the park is going to do this in stages. They're going to concentrate in 23 different zones. There's going to be a buffer around the areas that they're in where only the UN, um, the FARC themselves, and um, civil uh, members of the Colombian institutions will be present. Um, it's going to happen in stages to guarantee their security um, because this is basically one of their, their biggest issues. So even if we see peace with the FARC come about by the end of July, it is going to take some months before we see the actual demobilization of this particular rebel group. Yes. It's going to be at least 180 days after the peace agreement is signed because the whole um, laying down of arms and concentration zones process doesn't start until they actually finalize and sign the accord. It starts the day after. And they've set a timetable of how they're going to do this in different steps that basically lead to 180 days where then all of the arms will be and weapons will be turned in. The UN is going to receive all those weapons and munitions. Uh, they're going to basically melt them down and do three monuments with them, one that's going to go to the UN in New York, one that's going to go uh, to Cuba, another one to Colombia. But yes, it's not going to be like most uh, peace agreements where it basically... Uh, in most peace agreements, the first thing you have is the bilateral ceasefire and then the negotiation. Colombia kind of did this backwards. They negotiated while they were still fighting. One of the groups, the FARC, in different occasions had a unilateral ceasefire, but they weren't able to get a bilateral ceasefire until they've actually negotiated all of the main points. Walk us through some of what the United Nations is going to do here. How important is the United Nations to this process? Well, um, the United Nations is going to form, well, they've already formed as of January, but it's going to be basically putting in place a verification mission that's going to include members of select countries and some 300 persons that will basically oversee this process. So they will be in the concentration zones uh, overseeing the laying down of arms guaranteeing um, that um, everyone on each side is uh, doing what they've agreed to do um, and basically will be the guarantors of the security process. Um, that mission, however, is not a huge mission considering um, 
the security concerns in Colombia or even how big Colombia is and how protracted this conflict is. So at the same time that you have this UN verification mission, you will continue to have a UN country team dealing with the different issues that they already deal with. So those include the UN uh, Development Agency that's dealing with economic development projects is going to greatly help in aspects of the accords that have to do with um, spurring economic development alternatives post-conflict. You're going to have the UNHCR, which is the refugee agency, still addressing the concerns of the over 6 million displaced people that are probably going to go through some major transformations. And then you will still have the High Commissioner for Human Rights Office, which has played a huge role in battling uh, issues of impunity, strengthening institutions, and recording the different violations committed by the different groups, as well as the armed forces of Colombia. And who is providing security? Um, will it be the United Nations? Will it be the Colombian government? Who is who is guaranteeing safety for these demobilizing guerrilla troops? Well, basically, you're going to have the de facto protection of the UN, although they won't be armed in the area. And then within a kilometer, you will have a peripheral um, security provided by the Colombian Armed Forces. There are fears, of course, in Colombia that members of the FARC will not lay down arms, that they will uh, try to link up with their competing rebel group, the National Liberation Army, the ELN. Uh, What are your thoughts about that possibility? Well, I think that the ELN is going to find itself in a situation where it's going to have to decide whether it wants to continue fighting and risk being annihilated. Because if the FARC demobilizes, and the FARC has always been the stronger military group, um, you will have all of a sudden the entire uh, armed forces of Colombia concentrated on the ELN. And so... The ELN is going to have to make the decision whether they want to risk being completely um, annihilated or whether they want to push for peace. Um, Considering that the ELN is more likely to try to push for peace, I think that what we might see are more political arrangements in the future between the two rebel groups in terms of uh, perhaps having some of the same constituencies and coming together on some of the issues that they feel are are of most concern. However, in all demobilization processes that you've seen in Colombia in the past, um, especially the one that happened uh, with the Self-Defense Forces of Colombia, there was a portion of folks who decided that they preferred to be continued um, armed combatants than going into civil life. And so there might be a percentage of the FARC that does that, that decides to go into the ELN while the ELN situation is not resolved, or may even decide to go into the criminal groups and find it more lucrative to be part of um, organized crime groups that are in the illegal economies like coca and gold and other resource extraction rather than civil life. So. One of the biggest issues is going to be guaranteeing a quick um, fix in terms of folks being able to be employed and being able to become self-sustained in legal economies um, in the next year. And because you've mentioned the illegal groups that, that surround this process, the FARC has been a principal player in the movement of COCA in Colombia, uh, as during the latter parts of the Civil War. And, and so I'm, I'm, I think that there is, there is quite a possibility that, that these soldiers, these rebel soldiers, can then become part of uh, an illegal armed group other than this institution that they have known as the FARC. Yes, but um, the hope is that if that does happen, it will probably be a much smaller group. Already, just with the unilateral ceasefire, in the past year and a half, you've had the least amount of um, violence and abuses committed um, in the country. It's been um, 
not abuse-free. There have been serious concerns when it comes to protection of human rights defenders, for example. That continues to be a trend that it isn't improving. But in terms of massacres, in terms of other um, displacements and things, it's been significantly reducing because of these talks. Thank you so much. Imana Sanchez of the Washington Office on Latin America, WOLA, joining us via long distance from Washington, D.C. Thanks for being our guest on Latin Pulse. Thank you. We'll be hearing more from that interview with Imana Sanchez later this summer. Coming up, the new book that traces the history of corruption and wealth in Brazil. Stay with us. This is an important message from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. If a hurricane warning is issued for your area or authorities tell you to evacuate, take only essential items. If you have time, turn off gas, electricity, and water and disconnect appliances. Make sure your automobile's emergency kit is ready. Be sure to take prescription drugs with you. Follow the designated evacuation routes and expect heavy traffic. To learn more, contact your local emergency management authorities. This week, the new book, Brazilian Airs, hit the bookshelves and stores across the U.S., a timely release given the ongoing corruption scandal in Brazil, tied to the money drained from the state oil firm Petrobras. Brazil is struggling with the impeachment of one president, allegations tainting her interim replacement and his cabinet, a major recession, and more. The full title of Brazilian Airs includes the subtitle, Wealth, Power, Decadence, and Hope in an American Country. We asked author Alex Quadros to explain the title of his book. He joined us via Skype from Sao Paulo, Brazil. Well, the first part of the title, Brazilian Airs, um, was half-jokingly suggested to me by a friend of mine. Um, but as soon as he said it, I realized it was the perfect title. I'd been thinking about uh, a book about Brazil and its billionaires. And the title itself is kind of crass and ostentatious. Um, and I think in that way, it reflects some of the crassness and ostentation of this world um, that I have been investigating and studying for the past few years. Well, well, tell us about that. You and I have talked a bit about corruption before. So how much... How many of these Brazilianaires uh, got to their way by, um, by the hard-knuckle way to do it? And how many of them um, got there through some corrupt uh, method? Well, there are a lot of families in Brazil who owe their money, at, at least in part, to good ties with the government. Um, one chapter of my book, the second chapter, I talk a lot about the families that own the construction giants that are involved in the giant corruption scandal uh, at Petrobras. What's interesting is to study their history and see how, you know, despite the headlines of what we're seeing now in Brazil, the extent of corruption is nothing new here, and that this has been the way of doing business for these families and for successive governments in Brazil um, for a very long time. So there are a lot of billionaires and billionaire families who have been involved in, in corruption. But one of the points that I make in the book is that even, uh, even the billionaires who have not resorted to outright bribery in order to win business for the government, have resorted to legal methods of currying favor with the government. One of my main characters in the book is a guy named Ike Bachista. And in 2012, he was the eighth richest person in the world. He had a fortune of $30 billion. He... Um, Within about a year and a half, he lost everything. His empire completely collapsed. One of the, he raised a lot of money from private investors, billions of dollars through IPOs and bond sales, but he also raised a lot of money um, in subsidized loans from Brazil's State Development Bank. And he very actively 
curried favor with the Workers' Party government. He was a very generous campaign donor. Um, now, that is considered to be a legal form of influence, and it's something that we also see in the United States, of course, that one way to, once you reach a certain level of wealth and power, uh, one way to maintain it is by putting your money to work in the political system. So I think one of the things that was interesting to me about delving into this was to see that corruption um, is a question of degree, but it's something very common uh, at the high levels of wealth and power. You mentioned that chapter about the construction firms in Brazil, and I wonder about whether in your book you also explore some of the current scandal that ties those construction firms to the state oil company Petrobras, or, or is that your next book? I do get into that, yes. Actually, um, I've been looking at these families uh, and these construction firms since 2012. The way I got into this topic is that I was a reporter at Bloomberg, and Bloomberg decided to create a team of journalists that would exclusively cover billionaires. Uh, and I was asked to join. Um, and I'd never really thought about billionaires much as a, as a class of people. Um, but I found out quickly that it was a really interesting window on the way that power works in Brazil and the way the economy is structured in Brazil. So I was looking at the way that these companies uh, you know, make their money and finance the political system since before the car wash investigation erupted in 2014. Which is not to say that um, nobody knew about it. It was the kind of thing that everyone knew was happening, but um, Brazil's institutions hadn't gotten to the point where these crimes could actually be investigated. Now, I turned the first draft of the book in um, in January 2015, when this scandal was just gaining momentum. Over the course of 2015, I rewrote the book um, uh, substantially, and I kept having to update the final chapter uh, to account for new revelations, uh, to account for the economy getting worse and worse. Um, and I've, I've been fiddling with it and making sure that it's up to date um, so much that I think my publisher may want to kill me at this point. Well, we've talked a lot about the wealth and power in the subtitle of the book, but um, not so much about decadence and hope. And so I'm, I'm wondering, do you have um, a story or two about decadence and hope? Not necessarily linked together? Probably the story of greatest decadence that I encountered involves one of these uh, construction firms, uh, Camargo Correa, which is one of the biggest construction firms in Brazil and is one of the main members of the uh, cartel that was skimming bribes from Petrobras contracts. Uh, it was founded by a guy named Sebastião Camargo, uh, who grew up poor, actually, um, and through some measure of hard work and talent, managed to start a little subcontractor, um, but found that he couldn't get very far um, without knowing anybody important. He was working in uh, Sao Paulo uh, early in the 20th century. But he made a friendship with a politically co uh, connected lawyer, and he started winning contracts um, and use that as a lever to win contracts all over the country. And one secret to, perhaps the main secret to being successful in the public works business in Brazil is that you have to be friends with whoever is in power. So that means that Sebastião Camargo made friends with right-wing politicians, with left-wing politicians. He got along very well with uh, President João Goulart, 
who was overthrown in the 1964 coup. When the military dictatorship came into power at that point, he became very close to the generals. He became so close that um, in 1969, when the generals decided to create this anti-subversion unit called Operação Bandeirante, uh, or Oban, uh, they decided to make it an off-the-books operation. And it was basically a unit that would round up suspected subversives, torture them for information, often murder and disappear them. And since it was off-the-books, they decided to ask uh, Sao Paulo's business class for donations. And Sebastião Camargo became one of the top donors to this anti-subversion unit. So to me, it's the, one of the most extreme cases that you can possibly imagine of being friends with whoever's in power and sort of setting your ethics aside for the sake of your business. How about hope? Hope. Yeah, that's an interesting question because it's a moment in Brazil where there is not much hope. On the one hand, hope in the subtitle refers to this period of exuberance that Brazil experienced uh, during the Lula years. Uh, I arrived in Brazil in 2010, which was the peak of this euphoria, uh, th this feeling that Brazil was on the verge of becoming a developed country, was on the verge of leaving poverty behind, and after centuries, really, of cycles of boom and bust, was finally leaving bust behind. So it was a moment of, it was a moment of real hope, and it was, it was a fascinating time to be here and see this optimism in people and see, uh, you know, the results of tens of millions of people being lifted from extreme poverty by the Workers' Party's uh, welfare program. Now, with the economic crisis, um, we're seeing some of those gains being erased, for sure. What haven't we discussed about your book that you'd like to add? I, I hinted at it um, in my answer about corruption, but one thing that was really powerful for me getting into this topic was to see how many reflections there were between um, ideals about wealth and ideals about success and uh, ideas about what are the role of billionaires in a society, uh, to see how many reflections there were between Brazil and my own country, the United States. Um, and which is why I have this uh, at the end of the subtitle, In an American Country, um, I want to kind of suggest that the issues that Brazilians are facing and the way things work here have echoes in the ways things uh, work in the United States. Um, the role of very powerful billionaires in a society. That concludes our interview with Alex Quadros, the author of the new book, Brazilianaires, Wealth, Power, Decadence, and Hope in an American Country. We spoke to Quadros via Skype from Sao Paulo. And now, a programming note. Latin Pulse will be taking a short July vacation. You can find us back online July the 29th. Thanks for joining us for Latin Pulse this week. If you'd like to send us your suggestions or comments, you may leave us a message online via SoundCloud, or you may write us via email. You can find us at latinpulse at gmx.com. That's Latin Pulse, all one word, at gmx.com. You can also find our program at the website Latin America Goes Global. You can find that website at Latin America Goes Global, written as all one word, dot org. If you're looking for earlier editions of our program, we're available in other locations on the web, including iTunes, Facebook, and Henty Flow. And as always, you can find us in the Brazilian online game, Mini Mundos. To see the Latin Pulse archives of video programs on Latin America, 
you can check out Link TV's website. You can find it at linktv, all one word, dot org, and then slash Latin dash pulse. That's linktv.org slash Latin dash pulse. Thanks for joining us this week on Latin Pulse. For our entire team, production assistant, Chorsey Martin, and technical director, Jim Singer, I'm Rick Rockwell. Escucha nosotros vez. Gracias por su tiempo. Latin Pulse is produced at the School of Communications at Webster University, the global university, headquartered in St. Louis, Missouri, with music copyright support through Webster University and Link TV. This program is copyright 2016 Las Rocas Productions.